Ezra chapter 9. We're going to finish up Ezra. One of the uh, um, interesting things, hopefully, we'll, we're going to be able to glean tonight and as we continue our, our journey through the Old Testament, the chronological history of Israel is ten chapters from being over. Kind of hard to believe, right? The biblical chronology of the history of Israel is done after Nehemiah. After Nehemiah, we go into the the books of history are over, and and we go into the writings. We go into to Job and Psalms, Esther, and uh, which we talked a little bit last week. Um, and so the the total culmination of the history of Israel leading to Messiah is over. At the end of Nehemiah, there are four hundred quiet years while the people wait and. As we look at First and Second Chronicles and Ezra and coming into Nehemiah, and we see the the, the exiles, they're coming home. Their the seventy years of of captivity is coming to an end. They kind of slowly trickle back down. They build the temple, but as soon as they start to try to build the walls around the city, they get shut down. Ezra comes in, and we're going to read today about. Uh, a little mini revival that Ezra does. And, and during this time, uh, we talked last time of some of the prophets uh, that were, that were uh, prophesying during this time. Uh, as we come in toward, especially these last couple of chapters of Ezra and going into Nehemiah, I also want you to be aware that Malachi was prophesying at this time. And when we look at this period of time, for the nation, and how does that period of time apply for us? What what does that mean for us? Um, I want us to to just back up for a minute. We're gonna we're gonna go to the book of Amos as we start out. If you guys wanna, it's a good journey for you. It's in the prophets. Comes Hosea, Joel. Amos, if that helps you. (laughs) In uh, Amos chapter 8, verse 11, the prophet Amos prophesies about those times when God's people are in a place of... um, I don't know, stagnancy is a good word, complacency, um, certainly a period of, of drifting, a time period in which they're not experiencing growth, uh, a time period in which they're, they're not hearing the Word of God. They're, they're on their last prophet. God's going to send them for a long time. And here's what Amos said in Amos Chapter 8, verse 11, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. God says, there's coming a time, I'm going to be quiet. I have said a lot. Said a lot. So, we come to the end of Nehemiah. We, We see, you know... 
a little bit of, of growth and the temple's built, but it's not super cool. And Nehemiah's going to build the, the city walls, which by the way is cool because it starts the clock to Messiah. Daniel prophesied while they were in Babylon that when they rebuild the, the wall in the streets, when the, when the command goes forth to rebuild that, the clock starts and Messiah's coming. And if you count the days, the way uh, Sir Robert Anderson puts them together in Daniel chapter 9, you come up with April 6, 32 A.D., the day Jesus walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So, <laughs> so as we look at that, as we see that coming, but, but leading up to that point, God is saying, the days are coming when I'm done talking. I, I, I'm... I'm, uh, I'm coming to the point where I, I don't have anything new to tell you. And a lot of times we can find ourselves today in the same place. Like the children of Israel during the time of Ezra. Life's hard. Things are difficult. We feel like we're drifting around not hearing from the Lord. So as we consider it, I just want to... Uh, We'll go from Amos to Matthew. Just flip over to Matthew. When we come to Jesus and He begins to teach in, in Matthew chapter 5, He uh, he tells us something that um, I, I pretty consistently go back to, and you guys have heard it before, it's Matthew 5, 6. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, among God's people, there are always those people who want more of Him. But there's no new prophet. And while those people may experience um, uh, greater manifestations or empowerments of the Holy Spirit in their life, it's not because somehow God has singled them out and left you behind. That's not how it works. Paul would write to us in, uh, in Galatians. Flip over to Galatians real quick. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says this to the Galatians. Listen, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He goes on to tell them in verse 3, Are you so foolish then, having begun in the Spirit, that you think you can be made perfect in the flesh? How is it that the Spirit comes? By the words of faith. How do the words of faith come? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. We go to to 1 Corinthians. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and Paul talking to the church at Corinth that is is struggling in, I think... uh, uh, some of the same predicament that we see going on in Ezra and in Nehemiah and the hearts of people. And he says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse uh, 13, if I remember right, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. So what's he talking about? Very specifically in verse 13, he's talking about his epistle, the Word, the Bible. How the Holy Spirit speaks. 
Through the Bible. That's what he's saying. And then he says in verse 14, the natural man does not receive things of the Spirit. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So he's saying, okay, we want to, to be filled with God. We want to hunger and thirst for God. Where do we find that satiation, the satisfaction? Where does it come from? It comes from the same place Amos said that people were going to be starving from. It comes from the Word. And the manifestations and the empowerments of the Spirit working in people's lives, the Holy Spirit is not coming to somebody's life who is not grounded and founded in spending time devouring God's Word. Well, I won't say that they can't make a show. You can make a show anytime you want. But a Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God, comes through the Word. Not through acts of the flesh, but through the hearing of faith. Through the Word. The Word of God. Now, does that mean the Holy Spirit doesn't empower and those things don't happen? Sure it does. But it's founded here. Founded here. Amos didn't say, I'm going to send you a famine of the Spirit. He said, I'm going to send you a famine of the Word. Jesus shows up on the scene and says... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? As they'll be filled. Where do we find that spirit? Where do we find that hope? If we just turn, if you're in 1 Corinthians, let me just turn to the right for a minute and go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, uh, or I'm sorry, don't go to the right because you'll go the wrong way. Go to the left, the other right. Romans 8, 5, listen. For those who live according to the flesh, set... Their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The Word has already declared to us what are the things of the Spirit? The Word of God. If I hunger and thirst for righteousness, where am I going to find my feeling from the Word of God? What was missing from the people's lives according to Amos? The Word of God. Over and over again, when the children of Israel are going into captivity, why are they going into captivity? They lost the Word. They don't know what the Word of God says. They don't know what the Word of God teaches. They don't know how to hunger and thirst for righteousness. They just know how to live life and on life's terms, looking around at how things happen. And, and as a result, they are not experiencing the voice of God and God's direction. And the Lord says to them, I am done speaking. Just in case, we think maybe that's different for us in the New Testament. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, here's what God says. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken. That word spoken means it is all wrapped up. He has finished speaking to us by His Son. Everything that Jesus has to say to us, you have before you. Everything that you need to develop a a relationship where we're being filled, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we have with us. But if we neglect that, then we'll find ourselves right where these guys are. 
We'll find ourselves living in a land that belongs to somebody else. We'll find ourselves struggling day in and day out to, to get anywhere, not hearing from the Lord, feeling stagnant, feeling like we're drifting. Slowly we go from a position where we're walking where God wants us to, well, I'm not really doing the things God wants me to do, and I'm not really involved, and I'm not really caring about doing anything else. And then... That's their whole existence. If we come here and you're looking through the book of Nehemiah and Ezra and you're hoping for another golden era of Israel, it's over. The golden era is past. David's gone. Not another one, not another one coming until Christ. So, what the pages of Scripture are laying out for us, I'm just hoping that we can, that we can grasp the, the importance because so often people, you know, we listen, we need to be people who are moving forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's this movement today that just wants to worship the Holy Spirit and put out the Word. Well, they were there back then too. They were there. It was called Corinth. And Paul said, no, the Spirit comes through the Word. Hebrews says there's no new revelation. Can there be words of prophecy? Absolutely. But there's no new revelation. What God has to tell you about salvation and about righteousness, you have. How does it that it was said, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, then they won't believe even if someone raises from the dead. They won't receive the word. Longest chapter in the Bible. What's it all about? The word of God. What is it that David says over and over again? What revives our soul? The word of God. Over and over, he lays it out for us. And so when we look at Ezra and we see what Ezra is doing, now remember, 60 years has passed. Ezra now has made his journey. In the seventh year of Artaxerxes, um, I think when we get to Nehemiah, it'll be the 20th year of Artaxerxes that Nehemiah picks up. But as we look at, at verse nine or chapter 9 of, of Ezra, remember, they're, they're here now. Ezra and the 1500 have come down. They brought $5 million, right, to, to offer and make sacrifices and do all these cool things. And what they do is they come into a city. Jerusalem is dirty and, and broken down and the walls are busted. The temple's up. There's a place for worship. And the people are living there and they're doing kind of their own thing and, and whatever. And Ezra comes down with the Word of God. It says in, in chapter 9, verse 1, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel... And the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Well, you put anything you want in there. What's he saying is the people have not separated themselves. We are mixing it all up. We got the place to worship right there. But the, according to Malachi... The Spirit of God was never in it. 
God's in Solomon's temple, the Spirit of God lived there. When the priest went in, he saw God. I mean, what you could see of the smoke, the mist, the Shekinah, the Kabod, whatever, whatever they saw, there was a visible, tangible representation of God. But according to Malachi chapter 3, uh, verse 1, who was the prophet during this time, he says that the Spirit of God won't be in that temple again until April 6, 32 A.D. When Jesus comes. You remember what He does when He comes and He comes into the temple? He cleanses the temple. He overturns the tables. He cleans it. He says what? My Father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And daily He taught. But the time comes when Jesus turns to leave the Temple Mount. Somewhere in the neighborhood of four days. But He turns to leave the Temple Mount. And when He does, He says to them, When he came, he said, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. When he left, he said, see, your house is left to you desolate. The Spirit of God came, according to Malachi 3.1, when Jesus showed up. And then he left it. Because there was a famine of the word. When the, when the wise men came and said, where is Jesus to be born? They didn't have a hard time figuring it out, did they? No, they looked in the Bible. And then they come and tell Herod, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So what do they do with that information? Kill every child two years old and younger in Bethlehem. <laughs> Are you kidding me? A famine of the Word. So... Ezra is here. He's come. He's brought the offerings. In, in verse 36, it says, They delivered the orders to the king's satraps. They gave support to the people in the house of God. They gave the five million bucks. And then the leaders came to Ezra. So Ezra is a godly man who loves the Word of God, who loves what God's Word says. And the first thing they tell him, you got to love this. Your first day coming into town, you're excited about, you know, the possibilities, what's going to happen. And the leaders come to you and say, Hey, hey, we're... We're mixed together with everybody. Well, I don't want you to think of that like, well, we're America, we're the giant melting pot. Aren't you supposed to mix? The idea is, not only are they mixed with them, but they're mixed with their abominations. See, that means they're worshiping all those other gods too. They built the temple and they're still doing all the same stuff they did that put them in captivity in the first place. Why? Jeremiah told us. What did he say? The heart is wicked. People don't like that. When you start telling people that they're broken, that they're messed up, man, you you ought to watch some people's countenances change. Don't you tell me I'm as bad as them other people. I'm not that bad. Oh, man. You're worse now because you don't even know how bad you are. And so, the point is the depth of that depravity comes to a soul that doesn't have anything to eat blessed is he who hungers for righteousness for he shall be filled well how are we filled through the word of god through the word of god it fills us it opens our intellect it opens our mind. It, pro- it provides for us a seed of faith. 
Nobody on earth gets saved apart from, from God calling and wooing and from the Word of God. How can they? If you tell somebody about how to get saved, you just shared with them the Word of God. And when they receive that Word of God, that's where the faith comes from, which is a gift from God placed in His Word that comes into their heart. They have this faith, they place it into that, and now salvation occurs. (laughs) Growth can't happen apart from the Word of God. It's the Word of God that that causes us to grow. It's the Word of God that that infuses us with His Holy Spirit. You mean, Jesus said... The the Lord, God the Father, will give unto us the Spirit for whoever asks. Sure, He'll give you. Ask for the Spirit. Then I'm going to tell you where it is. It's on your lap. Everybody wants some kind of magic, you know. A lot of people have said, Jackie, I want to learn to play guitar. But but the the funny thing is, when you come to the parts where you got to learn about the guitar, it takes time. It takes effort. There's something you got to put into it. What they really want is you to put pixie dust over their head. And they come out, you know, like Fritz. Oh, yeah, look at that. There, there's magic. It's a lot of time put in to do that. People want the Holy Spirit to, to fill them and infuse them. And the Holy Spirit wants to do that. But He's right there in your lap. And if you ingest, you will be filled. The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the very next thing it says? People like to quote 5.18. Ephesians 5.18. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the next verse say? Speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody in your heart. It starts to go on to describe using the, the things that God has already given you. To pour into your life so that the Holy Spirit can blossom. So they tell Ezra, we, we're mixed. We're doing the same things we were doing, you know, 130 years ago when we went into captivity. The house is in shambles. We're not going anywhere. People aren't, aren't moving forward because they're practicing the same abomination. Look at verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers have been foremost. So, what's he saying? He's saying the leaders, here's what you're going to find out. I want to say in the neighborhood of 25% of all the priests had taken foreign wives. Now, is there a problem with taking foreign wives? The Bible tells them not to for particular reasons, but are there not examples of foreign wives in the Old Testament? Come on, you can't, you gotta look into the, you wanna spend time looking at foreign wives, look in the, in the genealogy of Christ. Who is Rahab? She's a foreign wife. Saved. Made part of the family of God. What about Ruth? Moabitess. She's a foreign wife, but she becomes the great-grandmother of David. So the point is, in the story, is not just that there were foreign wives that they, that they married, you know, that, that this, this is racial. It's not racial. This is spiritual. What came when they went out to the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Amorites and the Hittites and they married women who were not of faith? Is they came to their relationship with their faith. And what did those guys start to do? 
They started to, to make their wives happy. They started to worship their gods and set their little idols up and do all their stuff. And who's doing it in Ezra? The leaders. <laughs> the leaders, he says, the leaders are foremost. And then the priests. So all the people who were to be the example for the nation aren't the example. How come? Because there's a famine of the word. That's why God sent Ezra. Because Ezra was a scribe. Ezra was an expert in the scriptures. Ezra went for the sole purpose of sharing the Word of God with people. And and we're going to see what that Word of God does in their lives. Look, it says in verse 3, So, when I heard this thing, this is Ezra, I tore my garment and my robe, plucked out some of my hair from my head and my beard, and sat down astonished. (laughs) That hurts. You know what I see in verse 3 is how much Ezra hated sin. Is that how we feel? Or we make friends with sin. It's okay, you know, sin's my, it's my buddy. It's a little thing. It's not that big a deal. You know, we do this, we do this, we allow this, we allow that. Anytime sin gains ground in my life, it is me loving something else. More than God. Every time. Doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it is, whatever sin it is, it is me loving something else. If it's drink, it's me loving alcohol more than God. If it's women, it's me loving women more than God. If it's pornography, it's me loving pornography more than God. Doesn't make any difference what it is. Ezra was so bummed about that. He pulls out his own hair and his own beard. He tears his clothes. He falls down before God weeping and mourning and fasting and crying. Is that how we feel about sin? Why did Ezra feel that way? He was an expert in the Word of God. The Word of God hurt. It hurt his heart to think about How the people were hurting God's heart. We simplify the law down to a simple commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? So to to have any of these other things. To say, when God said in Deuteronomy 7.3, Please, don't go out there and marry foreign women. Don't make that your goal. They're going to turn your heart against me. Let's just stay together and grow together and be a big happy family. The nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll take care of you, just trust me. When the people went outside, they were saying, I love that woman more than you. Today, the Scriptures declare to us, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. This is God's Word. How many people do it? So what's the declaration? Well, I'm the exception to the rule. (laughs) God's Word did not mean me. It just was talking about everybody else. Not me. I love this thing. I love this opportunity. I love this sin more than God. But it it broke Ezra's heart so much. He he does not 
<laughs> he does not yell at them. He doesn't set up a sermon and scream at all the people and tell them what's wrong with you guys. He doesn't do any of those things. He falls down on his knees weeping before God. He, he, he says in verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I just sat astonished at the, until the evening sacrifice. So he hears the word, he falls down on the ground, he's there at the temple, the morning sacrifice has gone off. From the time of the morning sacrifice, uh, sunrise-ish, to, to uh, the evening sacrifice, sunset-ish, he is laying there crying, weeping out to God. And the people who see it all start to come around. Well, he hadn't said a word. He's just weeping and crying out to God. He says, I sat astonished. I'm blown away. I don't know what to do. We're just coming from captivity. I just came from Babylon. We were sent there because we were doing this stuff. Because we were worshiping other gods and it was becoming a part of our life and people were forgetting the Word of God. And now I come down here and we've only been here 50 years, 60 years and we're doing it again. Man don't learn from history, does he? Well... At the evening sacrifice, he says, I arose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe. I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. So all day long, he, he weeps. <laughs> Have you ever wept over sin like that? that we, we, we lose, we lose the, the sight of, of that offense. We belittle that offense. We belittle... The, the offense to God when we sin. It's one of our coping mechanisms, I think. But anyways, he, he stops. He's on his knees. He lifts his hands to, to the Lord my God. And he's going to pray. So he's gone all day. The people are beginning to gather around. They've heard, man, Ezra is, is really upset. He's torn his clothes. He's pulling out his hair. He's crying out to God because of the sin in the land. And his own mourning and his own crying out to God begin to bring all the people around Jerusalem to the temple. And as they are gathered into the temple, he begins to pray. Listen to his prayer. He says, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities. What does it say? We don't pray like that. That's not what we do. We would change that to their. We would say, their iniquities, man, them dirty, rotten, good-for-nothing sinners, them messed up people, them people who got it all wrong. Ezra didn't have no foreign wives. Ezra wasn't worshiping false gods. Is Ezra still broke? Yeah. He's still a sinner? Yeah. So how do you come before a holy God? Yeah, it's our iniquity, not just them. It's, a, it's all of us together. He's, he's coming to God in an attitude of brokenness, in an attitude of humility, acknowledging His guilt, not trying to make excuses, right? Look what He says. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. God, oh, we're guilty. Oh, he, he has Himself a part of it. You know the reason after 70 years that the people come out? It's not because the people all repented. 
It's because Daniel did. Daniel, a prophet of whom not one sin is mentioned, repented for the whole nation to God Almighty, saying, we have sinned. God's coming to God in that attitude, like Solomon said so long before, right? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. Doesn't say if they pointed all the problems everybody else has. If they humble themselves and pray, acknowledge their position, acknowledge where they're at, acknowledge their sin. Look what it says, verse 7, Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands. We've been delivered to captivity. We've been delivered to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation as it is this day. Are they their own nation? No. They're never going to be their own nation again. Until 1948. That's a long time. So... He's saying, man, we, because of all this sin, because of our choice, because of the fact that we, we, we hate God and we love our sin. So we're, we're still fighting the same battle. We're still, we're still having the same struggle. But look at verse 8. And now for a little while, grace has been shown. What's Grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, mercy is not getting what you do. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. What was, what was God giving them? He was bringing them out anyways. He was establishing them in the land anyways. Because God's desire is to bless, to pour out His blessing, to pour out grace. And, and same in the Old Testament as today. God's desire is to save. God says, I have no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but the wicked repent and live. When Jesus told the stories of the lost coin and the lost sheep, what happened when they were found? All heaven erupted in the spontaneous praise, right? Because they were so stoked that someone was saved. You're not going to find a section in Scripture where the Bible says the Lord rejoiced like that over the destruction of the wicked. He glories when the wicked are saved. So look what he says. For now, a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. Listen, here's what I want you to see. There's four things I want you to see in this verse. To leave us a remnant to escape. What's he talking about? He's given us a little grace for a new start. A remnant is a small group of the faithful that God saves. No matter what's going on throughout the history of Israel, there has always been a remnant. What's he saying? Look, he's given us for a little while, he's given us this grace. Now, at this time, probably, you know, 70, 80 years have happened down there. People have been living down there in Jerusalem. There's probably 100 to 150,000 people there. It's a bit bigger than Buell, right? 
So there's a lot of people down there. And, and, and so he's saying, man, for a little while, for a little while, God's given us a remnant. We've got this grace. We've got an opportunity for a new start right now. We've got an opportunity for... How, how often do you get a chance for a new beginning? The Bible says, His mercy is new every morning. That's a lot of new starts, right? If you want it to be right, all you got to do is accept the fresh new start that God's given. But so first, He gives us a new start. Look, to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in His holy place. The peg. He's saying, I'll give you a secure hold in Me. A peg in the holy place. The picture in the language is like a tent peg. So a place where you can put your tent up in the holy place. What was the symbol of the holy place? It's in the presence of God. To give you a secure hold. I'll give you a new start. A secure hold in the holy place. This is, this is what God is offering. And he says, that our God may enlighten our eyes. We've got this new start. A secure hold in Him. A place where we can stand. A place where we can worship. So that God would enlighten our eyes. So He would open our eyes. So we could see. You know what the Bible tells us enlightens the eyes? The Word of God. Thy Word is a light. Isn't that what the Word declares? David even goes on to say in Psalm 19, these exact words, the Word of God enlightens my eyes. Then he says, not only a new start and a secure hold in Him, and the opening of our eyes to see, and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. You revive us. Ephesians chapter 2, and you who were dead in trespasses and sin, He has made alive together in Him. That's what it is to be revived again. To be made alive. To be made alive. How are we made alive? Through the Word of God. The Bible tells us over and over and over again. It's the Word of God that has given us new life. And so, if there's a little word, there'll be a little life. If there is an abundance of His Word, Jesus said, I've come to give you what? And life how? Abundantly. Uh, It comes from His Word. That's where those things take place, man. He says, a new start, a secure hold in Him to open our eyes and to make us alive in our bondage. To give us new life. We're just existing. We're just going day by day by day through the drudgery of life. We wake up in a day and we say, man, life sucks. And I, all I got to look forward to is more days that suck until I die. That's what they're saying. <laughs> and if we're honest, there's a lot of that today, isn't there? A lot of that today. What's he, what's he got for the cure? He says in, in verse 9, For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. 
We were slaves. It's exactly the same thing when we talk about a life of someone before they come to faith in Christ. We were, every one of us, slaves to sin. That's the beauty of Romans chapter 6. So shall we sin that grace will abound? No! Can't do that. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? For once we were in bondage to sin. But now we have been set free. Our God didn't leave us in bondage. He didn't leave us. He says right here, we were slaves, but God didn't forsake us. Did God forsake us in our slavery? No, it's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. But He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. He gave us mercy. Remember what I told you mercy is? <laughs> Grace, unmerited favor. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do. Did they deserve to get set free? No. Did they? Yep. You ever known a guy to get out of jail that didn't deserve to get out of jail? You ever known a guy to get something he didn't deserve to have? Man. Here, the Lord is likening that to the mercy that He gave to the people. Look for the purpose, okay? Again, four things in verse 9. Four things that God gives. Not only in the beginning in verse 8, a new start, a secure hold in Him to open their eyes and make them alive together. But then in verse 9, what's He give them in verse 9? Mercy. He extended mercy to us. For what purpose? To revive us. Now what it says? In the sight of the kings of Persia, to revive us. To make us alive again. What's the next thing? To repair the house of our God. So not only mercy and revival, but He gave them uh, the, the repairs that they needed and rebuild the, the ruins. So you got repairing and rebuilding to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. That doesn't happen for almost another hundred years. It doesn't happen for a hundred years. But what's He saying to them? God has given us mercy. He's made us alive. He repairs us. What fixes our brokenness? Man, God, He's the one who mends us, who makes us whole. He fixes the broken parts. What rebuilds our life? God, He rebuilds our life. He pours out that grace and mercy in our life. He rebuilds it. He rebuilds us. And then finally, what's the wall in Judah? Protection. God sets a hedge of protection around His kids. Does that mean nothing bad ever happens? No, it doesn't mean nothing bad ever happens. It means nothing touches you that God don't give the past to. should be okay with that. Protection. Mercy. Revival. Repair. Rebuild. And protection. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Verse 10, as Ezra's crying out, he's talking about all that God has given them. And in verse 10, he says, we have failed to love you. That's what that means. First John tells us, if you love God, you will what? And His commandments are not grievous, no burden. 
no burden. What's the command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said all the law and the prophets. How much of the law? And all means? And that's all that all means, right? So all the law and the prophets is summed up in this. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love God and you love your neighbor, you won't do those things. So doing those things is not loving God. We gotta stop telling ourselves it's a little white lie. We gotta stop telling ourselves that, that, that this sin is not as bad as that guy said. I've never murdered anybody. Well, congratulations. But you are every bit as guilty of offending the creator of the universe as the guy who murdered every kid that was in that classroom in first grade. And that's horrific. But somehow we don't see our sin that way. We, we purdy it up. Put a little makeup and paint on it. Call it good. But Ezra says, look at all the stuff you blessed us with, God. All the blessings and we have failed to love you. You remember, I told you, when David was confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet, God told him two things. Why, David, did you hate me? And why, David, did you hate my word? That's God's words. What had David done? Sinned against him. Forsaken his commandments. That's what, that's what sin is all about. So in verse 11, he goes on, he says, These commandments which you commanded by your servants of prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is unclean. You guys are going into a place that is spiritually unclean. There are de- there's demon worship where you're going. There are people sacrificing their children where you're going. There are people doing horrific things where you're going. So when you get there, stay separated from them. I want you to stay in a relationship with me. Just keep loving me and I'm going to bless you and I'll establish you in the land and we'll keep the disease, the uncleanness from the land from infiltrating. But what they do? They started to, to bring them women and men and the, the outside in, uh, influences in and they started worshiping those gods Solomon did the same thing so we see the exact same event happening again here look what it says the the land is unclean land and the uncleanness of the people of the land here's the definition with their abominations which have filled it from one end to the other with impurity the abomination what was the abominations of the people with all their false worship was all the other gods that they worship. You don't think the devil knew where God was going to put his name? Uh, for those of you who think the devil lives in the United States or in Las Vegas, you're crazy. If the devil the devil is not omniscient, that means he can't be everywhere. He can only be in one place at a time. The devil is anywhere. He's in the Middle East. He's not here. He's around Jerusalem, Persia, Iran, Iraq. You guys know where he's at. Where is all the 
crazy stuff happening 24-7. He sends his little baby demons over here. That's all he needs for us. He's back there. Daniel, when he prayed to the Lord and, uh, and the angel Gabriel came to him with an answer. You remember what Gabriel said? I was on my way to you. And the prince of Persia stood up and, and fought with me and I couldn't beat him. I had to call for Michael to come and set me free. And you look at Isaiah, Isaiah 28 or Ezekiel 28. And Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And they describe the, the king of Tyre and the king of, of, of Persia. Both of them are pictures of Satan. Gabriel couldn't get him off him, but Michael could. So it took Gabriel 21 days to come to Daniel, who was fasting for an answer from the Lord for 21 days. So we, we see those things occurring. We see those events. So here in this land, he's saying it's full of uncleanness. It's full of abominations. There's disease all around. And, and if you get involved in all that stuff, that's going to come into you. It's going to kill you. So don't do it. Now therefore, in verse 12, don't give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. Never seek their peace or prosperity. You're supposed to make peace with the devil. Should we just all try to get along? No. Don't make peace with the devil. Stay away from them. Don't pray for their peace or their prosperity. Don't seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. But they'd already lost the land. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. God, you haven't given us what we deserve. Mercy. Again, is establishing mercy. The grace of God. We still have time. It's not over. You got breath in your lungs? You still got time. You still got time. Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remembrance or no remnant or survivor? O oh, Lord God of Israel, You are righteous. For we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before You in our guilt, though no one can stand before You because of this. His prayer ends with God, You are righteous. We are broken and we cannot stand. <laughs> uh, but He didn't ask God to do nothing, did He? Say, God, go fix them people. God, go. Can't you slap them knuckleheads? Can't you straighten this out? And he just cries out to God for what God has done, what God means to them, where they have failed, what's happened, what's happening in their nation. (laughs) Chapter 9 is the supplication of the scribe. Chapter 10 is the purification of the people. He just cries out to God. Now, while Ezra was praying, that doesn't say after Ezra said amen. Right? 
while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing and weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people, listen, wept bitterly. Same language used of Peter when he denied Christ. <laughs> they... All, all Ezra did was live his relationship with God out in the open. And he prayed out loud and he, and he, and he cried out to God, man, he did some cool stuff. And the people came and wept. They came, they gathered around him, they, they began weeping. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, <clears throat> said, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel despite of this. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them. According to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So, so, so this guy stands up and he says, hey, we, we need to repent. Repentance requires a change of direction. <laughs> Not just saying, I'm sorry, God. What, what do they say? If your wife is pagan, leave her behind. And your children. Wow. How much you love God? So often we tell the story about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. You guys remember that one? Man, I don't, I don't know. I think Ishmael was the test leading up to the test. Abraham loved Ishmael. But the day came when God said, you need to take Hagar, the wife I never told you to marry, and Ishmael, your son, and you need to send him out. And we look at it wrong. We go, oh, why would God make them do that? It's terrible. Mean God, their whole life is going to be ruined. No, I want you to hear it like this. God said to Abraham, if you believe in God, this is not a problem, by the way. God said to Abraham, I want you to give Sarah, I'm sorry, Hagar and Ishmael to me. I want you to give them to me. I'll take them. You know, Abraham, or God promised Abraham to take care of Ishmael, right? He took care of him. So, what did Abraham give Ishmael when he sent him out? Water. One canteen of water. And it didn't last long, did it? And he's laying down in the desert ready to die. And Hagar's laying down in the desert to die. And, and I wish I could say the word of the name of that place. It's like uh, El Leroy or something like that. It's the God who sees. How? So, now, yeah, I'll, I'll point to you when I want to. So he, he, she called out to God and God heard her. And God came and the angel came and sustained her and took care of her and Ishmael and, and established Ishmael. Now, Ishmael and Hagar, got, they got their own choices for how they want to deal with a relationship with God, right? It was not Abraham's job. 
God said, give them to me. All these people at Ezra's time, they say, we got to do the same thing. Abraham did. So chapter 10 tells us that they gathered together and they said, "They, they well, let's read it. I don't want to just give you the paraphrase. Let me tell you what they did. So they say, uh, he, he says to Ezra, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, and we also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all Israel swear the oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem, that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instruction of the leaders and the elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he would be separated from the assembly of those of the captivity. So he'd be put out. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days, It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square, the house of God, trembling because of the matter and because of the heavy rain. So it's around December. It's pouring. They're standing in the rain. They're a little freaked out about their offense of God. They are recognizing we have offended the God of the universe, and that causes them to tremble, which it should. Our sin should cause us to tremble before God. And they're trembling in that place, and the rain's falling on them. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and taken pagan wives. That's the key word. He's not talking about foreign wives. He's talking about wives who are worshiping foreign gods. And he says, If that's what they want, you got to let them go. you got to let them go. Adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers to do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. And all the assembly answered and said in a loud voice, Yes, as you have said we must do, but there are many people, and it is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside nor is this the work of one or two days. For there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please, let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and the judges of their city until the fierce wrath of our God has turned away from us in this matter. And only uh, Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehazai, the son of Tikva, opposed this with Meshulam and Sabbathai, the Levite, gave them support. So all the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest, with certain heads of their father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they were finished. Three months. I want you to see what they did. They brought every man... His, his family, some of them who had married pagan wives, also had uh, children. And they came before a council. And they 
understood the purpose of the council and what the council was doing. And they gave them opportunity. They gave pagan wives an opportunity to say, you know, I'm, I love my husband and I love my family and his God's going to be my God and I'm leaving this behind. 150,000 people. It takes a long time to talk to all of them, right? I mean, you can imagine. It wasn't just a few, right? So they come in and they talk. And at least this is how, how I see it. They, they come and, and there were those who, whose wives became believers and they stayed. Just like Ruth. Just like Rahab. Just like others. Because your God is my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. You know the deal, right? So they made that, they made that faithful proclamation. But at the end of three months, from verse 18 through verse 43, you have the list of the 113 who wouldn't change, who wouldn't come, who wouldn't put away their idols. And those 113 and those who had children were put out. They couldn't live inside the city. They went back to their father's houses or they went back to where they were from. The Bible says you had to do it according to God's Word. And God had given the children of Israel in Deuteronomy somewhere around 24 a letter of divorce. And He had a law about how you were supposed to take care of your wife. It didn't mean they never took care of them. Doesn't mean that there was not an established uh, a, a deal, but the point is, God was saying to them, "If they won't turn, you got to turn them over to me. You got to turn them over to me. You got to trust that I love them more than you do. You got to trust that the same grace and mercy that I've shown you, I'll show them." But they will be accountable for their own choice for what they do, right? You gotta give them to me. You love God enough. All those people, twenty five percent were priests. Their their wives either came along or they got put out. We know the number, you can count the names, 113. 113 got put out. How Does it take three months to interview 113 people? I don't think so. Would it take three months to interview 100,000? Yeah. Yep. So, they went through and they made their, their decisions. They made their choices. It says in verse 44, All these had taken pagan wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children. Do you love God more than you love your sin? When I, when I read this, you know, it's not simple to understand. There's difficulties in, in that section of Ezra. But here's what I hear. I hear Peter uh, with Jesus at the Sea of Galilee sitting down, just finished eating the fish, picking their teeth. And Jesus 
points at the boats and the big giant catch of fish and all the other disciples. And he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And God says the same thing to every one of us. You love me more than these. What is it that if God asked you for, you wouldn't give up? Same exact thing is happening in Ezra with this small group that happened with Moses and all the children of Israel. One day, God said to the children of Israel, You know, okay, you guys are just not ever going to get it. So I'll tell you what, I'm just done dealing with you. So here's what I'll do. You can go, you can have the promised land. I'll chase out all your enemies before you. You can have it all. But I'm not going. I'll give you everything you want. But I won't be with you. To the credit of the nation of Israel, they said, if you're not going with us, we don't want to go. Is that what we would answer? Or is there that thing? Well, God, if I could have heaven and all my family and friends and be happy forever, if you would take heaven and eternal joy and happiness with your family and friends, but you would not want Jesus... You don't know Him. Because if you know Him, you're going to want Him more than you want everything else. And so you live trusting He'll do what He said. He loves them all more than you. And He alone is the only worthy thing in all the universe. He's it. Greater value than every other thing. That's why He's worthy of our praise. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank You for this time. We thank You for the truth of Your Word, God, and for the experiences that we see here in Ezra, Lord, and as we move forward into Nehemiah and the building of the wall and the protection of God coming upon the people and, and people having to fight for their families and people having to, to build the wall of protection around their family with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand on their knees fighting for the safety of their family. It was all so picturesque of us just really trusting in You, loving You, holding on to You, grasping You with both hands, and knowing that in You, everything is going to come together. But outside of You, there is no hope. God, I pray that we would all choose You. That You would be first. And that we would recognize, Lord God, that if you're not, and if we're honest, then we're going to sound like Peter at the Sea of Galilee, right? Lord, uh, I'm your friend. Do you love me, Peter?
I'm your friend. Do you love me, Peter? I'm your friend. And every step, God gave him responsibility. And God told him to spend time in His Word and teach the sheep and tend the sheep. And He said, one day, you just stay the course, Peter, one day, and you're going to love me like that. I pray we would all stay that course. For one day, we will all love Him like that. Today, maybe we're not there. Maybe some of us are, some of us aren't. It's a journey, this life. But recognizing who we are in Christ and where we are in Christ and having the attitude of Ezra and realizing that I just need to make sure there's not a famine of God's Word in my life. God's Word is speaking into my my life every single day, every possible moment. Oh God, that's where the victory is. That's where we find You no matter what's going on around us. That's where we find the peace and the power, the presence. That's where we find our purpose. Lord, we pray that You would be glorified in this place, Lord Jesus, as we seek You every day to know You more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.